This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Who would live in a lockdown like this? The clues are there. And in this episode, we hope to go through the keyhole and with the help of some time specialists, find a way to unlock the lockdown. So we'll speak to education editor Rosemary Bennett about how and when schools and universities might go back. Transport correspondent Graham Payton explains how you social distance on a bus or a train. Spoiler you don't. And business editor Richard Fletcher awards long-term restrictions could prove fatal for your favourite restaurant and Primark. But first, nobody knows more about the science behind the virus and how we might get out of the lockdown than Tom Whipple, science editor of The Times, who's done some brilliant reporting on what we don't know as much as what we do. So, Tom, talk me through where we are right now. What are the things that we need to be keeping an eye on if we're ever going to see this lockdown lifted? So, well, there's, there's, two, there's two big numbers. Uh, well, there's one big number and one very small number. And the big number is how many new cases we have each day. And this is obviously a measure of how fast this is receding as an outbreak and uh, also a measure of how well we think we can control it. If there's the, the outbreak can be receding as fast as you like, but if we're currently on 100,000 new infections a day, then uh, that's still too much for us to consider reopening it. Um, but once it drops down to maybe 3,000 new infections a day, and I think it's on about 6,000 at the moment, then we can start thinking about reopening it. But then there is a second number, which is probably even more important, which is this number. I'm sure you've heard people talking about it. It's uh, Boris Johnson said that this was the key number. It's, it's a number called R, and it's the reproduction rate of the, vi- the virus. R is the reason that viruses matter at all. It's if I'm infected, how many people do I go on and infect? So if R is two, then that's basically saying when I'm infected, I'll sneeze on two people and give the disease to them. And obviously that's bad because they'll sneeze on four people, they'll sneeze on eight people, 16 people, and you know, you've rapidly infected the world. But if I sneeze on 0.9 people, um, or to make it slightly uh, less nonsensical, if 10 people have it and they sneeze on nine people and those nine people have it, then obviously this is going to slowly die out. So what we want is R to be less than one and the number of infections to be at some sort of manageable amount where we can start thinking, well, if we open it up, it's not going to instantly go wrong. Now, I'm all right and think they currently think the R value is somewhere between 
0.5 and 1. Yeah, and that's... I know that makes a big difference. If it's 0.5, that's great. And if it's 1, it's not good. It makes a huge difference. So, so the last press conference, the figures they gave were 0.6 to 0.9. Um, and obviously, that's, that's less than 1, which is fabulous. It means it's going to die out. Um, but we would like it to continue to die out even when we open things up slightly. So R started at the beginning of this outbreak. It was somewhere around 3. And if it's some, somewhere around 3, then an error gap of 0.3 is not... That's quite impressive. Unfortunately, now it's down to... Or fortunately now, it's down to well below 1. But the error gap of 0.3 takes us from 0.6, which is quite good, to 0.9, which is just less than the critical value of one. And it means our, our budget, to use this term, um, the, the amount of R we have to play with goes from 0.1, which is not good, to 0.4, which is frankly still not good, but a lot better than 0.1. So we probably need to get a far better idea of what R is. And that's what there's, there's some of these testing programs, some of these community testing programs are about, trying to pin it down. And then we see what we can play with. So everything we do from now on in terms of opening up the economy and opening up Britain is going to end up increasing R. So it might be that opening up schools adds 0.2, which is okay if your R is 0.6. It's not great if your R is 0.9. And it might be that doing some other things adds on another 0.1, 0.2, and then suddenly you're over one and that's terrible. But this isn't the only aspect in the equation, and this is where contact tracing comes in. So the moment we've got R, and then we add on something and something else, and hope it doesn't take us over one. But there's a negative we can add in there as well. The contact tracing is about buying R. It's about buying negative R and increasing the size of our R budget, because if we do contact tracing and testing right, it's not going to be a panacea, but it'll take a little bit of that R off. So it'll give us just a little bit more leeway. But I mean, let, let, let's be clear, as I say, with a fully open Britain, R was about three, and we've managed to take 2.3 off that, giving us about 0.3 to play with. So we don't have a lot to play with at all. And that's why these decisions are so difficult for the government at the moment. And when I'm talking shortly to Rosemary Bennett about schools and Graham Payton about trains and Richard Fletcher about people working in offices, do we know which of those would add more to the R value than not? Is it basically a sort of a guess at the moment? Can we look at other countries? Increasing capacity on trains do this versus, I don't know, people sitting apart in offices. Have we got any idea how much of the R budget each element eats up? Yes. So it would be wrong to say we have no idea. I think it would be right to say we have almost no idea. So the first problem is that we did everything at the same time. And pretty much everyone else did everything at the same time. So we introduced lockdown, we, we closed schools, we banned large gatherings, we stopped people going out. All of this happened in the matter of at most a couple of weeks. So it's very difficult to see what effect each of these things had. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to, ideally you'd say, well, schools was, it reduced reproduction rate by 20% and businesses by whatever, but we can't do that. So we, so we can't, when we do the reverse, we can't see what effect this would have. But even if we could, that would be essentially useless because the world we're reading, you know, humans aren't equations 
And the world we're reopening into is completely different. Our behavior is completely different. Um, the way we'd reopen businesses would be completely different. You know, we wouldn't be hanging around the water cooler chatting to everyone. We'd be keeping two meters apart. It wouldn't be the same thing at all. And so most of that you think, great, so we're going to a world where we're a lot better accustomed to washing our hands and not air kissing people and, you know, being far more careful. But there is also a converse of that. We're all really bored. So if tomorrow the government said, yes, actually, you can all go to the beach or you can open schools, everyone would go to the beach or everyone would say, I want to drop the kids at school. This is going to be the social highlight of my day. And this quotidian task suddenly becomes the uh, most crucial bit of socialising you'll do in your day. All of these things have completely changed. And uh, the, the modelers I speak to are completely open that we don't know what's going to happen. So that's why they will open it up slowly. They'll take an educated guess on what to open and how to open it, open it up slowly, do a lot of tracing and testing. And partly that'll be to tamp down whatever happens next. But partly that'll just be to see what happens to R. We basically don't know until we do it and then we'll find out. And it might well be that we will open things and have to close things. And I think Rosie will probably say that's one of the interesting things about schools is that if they open them for a little bit before the summer holidays, they can spend the summer holidays working out what that did and deciding whether or not we can reopen them in September. Finally, if you were sitting in Downing Street or sitting in Sage or uh, standing at the podium in Downing Street, what would be your hunch as to what would make sense to do now, given that despite my own personal wishes, it doesn't feel like we're about to go back to pubs? Um, so what, what do you think would make the most sense to do in the next few days when we sort of look ahead to the, the Prime Minister's announcement? I think they're going to be looking extremely hard at schools, at primary schools, and probably at key years in secondary schools, at um, you know year 10, year 12. Partly that's because there is a school of thought, and it is contested, but there is a school of thought that children aren't big carriers of this disease. They're certainly, they're not affected by it to the same degree, but the thought is they're probably not as infectious. So maybe it's okay to open schools. There's another thought that the, the social effects of keeping schools closed are so big that in terms of risk to reward, that's an obvious one to go to. And that's not, I'm sure times readers sitting are thinking, yeah, it, it's really annoying having to do homeschooling. It's really hard keeping my job going with homeschooling. That's absolutely the case. The things that have always worried the government hasn't really been that. It's about the fact that we're kind of in loco parentis to... Um, quite vulnerable children who, frankly, we just do not know what's happening to them now. Schools perform an incredibly important societal role like that, and that's just disappeared. And that's one of the real reasons that they're so keen to get primary schools open. So I think they'll be looking at that. I think it'll be a long time before pubs are reopened, before literature festivals are reopened, before all of these things are reopened. There might also be moves to think, how do we slightly allow people to socialise slightly more. There was this talk about bubbles where you might be able to increase the size of your household. I don't know, an elderly person on their own might be able to say, this is another elderly person on their own I can chat to and that's fine. And um, there might be moves to do that, but there's not going to be moves to say, let's all have dinner parties and barbecues, I think, for quite some time. And then I, I think the third thing is getting more people, more back to work. I think they were slightly surprised by the extent to which people actually obeyed some of this stuff, took notice of some of these 
rules and now they're thinking well we'll have leeway to get a few more people into offices but we certainly don't want the tube to be packed if we do that if completely selfishly what's the one thing regardless of the impact on r what's the one thing you're missing most and would like to bring back oh god i'd like to go out and see people (laughs) (laughs) i mean i've got i've got three young kids it would be lovely if at least two of them were in school i would more than anything else i would just I'd like to go and see some friends. Tom Whipple there with depressing news about pubs. But what does all of this science mean in practice? Let's turn our attention to schools first. Rosemary Bennett is the education editor of The Times. Rosemary, the hints and advice that we keep getting seem to change all the time. Uh, When do we think the schools might go back? And I say this as someone who's been trying to do homeschooling while also doing the day job. You and millions of other parents... Well, we've been told not before June the 1st. They want maximum flexibility really over a start date. So not before June the 1st, which is the Monday after the May half term. And I think what we can say with absolute certainty is it will be very small numbers at first. And they're still haggling over, should it be the youngest children? Should it be the children in the last year of primary school? Should it be the children doing GCSEs and A-levels next year. So there's still quite a lot about what is it, which group is the priority here. Schools very quickly and uh, very easily and, and the reopening will be very difficult. One thing to bear in mind is as soon as the Prime Minister announced social distancing, so way before the lockdown, 20 to 30% of teachers stayed at home and that could happen again. So at the moment, you can stay at home if you're showing symptoms or you're living with someone with symptoms. And that is head teacher's primary concern that they will be operating with very slim down numbers of staff. And presumably, particularly if teaching staff have got either underlying health conditions, they're shielding or they live with someone who is or, you know, have got children of their own uh, as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's similar across all sectors, especially the public, the public sector, that about 20 to 30 percent of staff uh, doing these kind of frontline jobs where they're dealing with the public or children or patients uh, are self-isolating uh, when they get any sorts of symptoms or anyone in their family has a symptom. Now, one of the um, big questions about, you mentioned social distancing, is how on earth do you get a group of 30, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 year olds to stay more than two metres away from each other? Yes, this is, this is, this, this is the key question. Uh, certainly, it, well, it's, 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 you can't, I mean, they, they, uh, will see their friend, they'll take a bite of their biscuit and go and give their friend the other bit of the biscuit, you know, so, so, so it will be a germ fest. Uh, so the key thing is to manage the numbers. And I imagine they'll only have a third, a quarter, a third of, uh, these younger kids in at any one time in spaced out desks that are spaced out for a very short school day it is impossible with these younger years but yeah all the research shows us that it's it's the younger years that you need to prioritize because that's they're learning to read they're learning to write these are really important building blocks so i would say with young primary school children it will be very small numbers for 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 a couple of hours a day and then the idea is that sort of sets them up for for homeschooling the rest of the week absolutely and there'll be no you know things like pe assemblies uh, playing outside at lunchtime, that's just off the agenda. Okay, then. Well, let's talk then about some of the, some of the older students, pupils who uh, may well be prioritised. Presumably, 
we obviously will talk about the exams being cancelled this year, but there are a whole, you know, next year's exam year. So the ones who are going to be doing GCSEs next year, doing A-levels next year, they're heading into the most crucial sort of 12 months of their education. It, will they be prioritised sort, sort of year 10, yes. year, what is it, year 10, year 12? So year 10, year 12, and, and another really crucial year is year six, the last year of primary school. It, it was, we'll start with, with those kids. There is, all the research shows a great big dip in educational performance between the last year of primary school and the first couple of years of secondary school because that transition is extremely difficult. You're often going from a school where there's 30 people in a year group to one where there's hundreds and kids often really, really struggle with that transition. You remember a load of bigger kids, you don't know the teachers, you're shuffling about between different classrooms for different subjects. So it's really important that they give those kids the best sort of send off that they can, but make sure that they're up to speed with where they should be academically, but also that they're thinking ahead about how different it's going to be, saying goodbye to the seven years of primary school that they've had, and just preparing them to be up for this new challenge. So I think that is a priority, that is a priority group. Then the other two groups, as you mentioned, if we could, year 12, so these are kids doing our A-levels next year, the summer exams in this summer term are used for predicted grades for A-levels. So that, again, is a really crucial period of education that's been lost. Often they're doing exams at home, whatever, but they're not, they're not quite as good because they're not going to give teachers really the, the greatest sense of, of what their predicted grades should be. So they're very keen to get those kids back in. And then with GCSEs, year 10, again, it's, you know, they're often doing nine to 10 different subjects. It's, vast quantities of information and knowledge have to be acquired and they've missed out on weeks and weeks of education. So I think those are the three key year groups that the government is interested in. Let's talk then about this summer. Obviously, there's a whole group of students who thought they were going to be doing revision right now and they're not. They're you know, it's GCSEs or A-levels. What is going on with the marking? I mean, I mean with, a, with an 18-year-old in our house who's actually quite pleased that, her, that she's Go to get a grade without having to go through the polite. Lots of other people are talking about their children who are very distraught that they're not going to do their exams. But um, our 18 year old seems quite happy to get a grade without doing that. But how are those grades going to work? And obviously, if you're an 18 year old, you don't know if you've got any prospect of going to any university in September. Are they going to be open? Is it going to be the new year? Are you going to have to pay your nine grand regardless? Absolutely. I, th- this is the year group I feel really sorry for. A-levels is, a, is such a rites of passage. The end of your schooling has just been swept away, plus the great uncertainty that it's now, it's, it's now out of your hands. So if you're a crammer uh, and fantastic at doing last-minute uh, intensive work and performing really well on an exam, you're going to feel this system where teachers are assessing your grades isn't going to play well for you. So uh, huge uncertainty. Teachers are currently looking at all past work, past exams, mocks, predicted grades, uh, essays that essays or coursework that have been completed, and trying to work out what is what, what grade that child would have got um, in the exam. And they will get their grades as usual in August. So then we get on. So, so if they are very unhappy, they can resit in the autumn and get their results at Christmas, and then they will just have to decide. Will their university still take them? Do they want to reapply? As you mentioned, huge uncertainty over whether universities are going to open as usual in September. At the moment, they're all frantically moving, uh, getting their tutors to record lectures, record seminar material, everything, 
so that they at least have an online offer to make because at the moment it seems very unlikely that that, that we're going to have freshers week as usual in September. Uh, you can't really do freshers week with social distancing. Uh, <laughs> you risk picking up all sorts of other diseases. As well. <laughs> <laughs> well, you risk picking up diseases anyway at freshers week. So uh, <laughs> I would imagine the first term will be online only. That is what, and that, and that might make it very unappealing for some kids who may then want to take a, a year out. They'll have to negotiate that individually with the university they want to go to. So huge uncertainty. Universities, depending on tuition fees, they're desperately trying to get the best online offer that they can to try and get these students to still come. And even if it means one term of working at home with mum and dad, who they've just spent a lot of time with anyway, <laughs> uh, and doing their studies online. Do you think that this is, you know, across the board, different industries are being affected by this and it could have a sort of long term impact of changing the way that... Does this have the potential to change how universities work? If more can be done online, potentially somebody might prove that you can do a three-year degree in maybe two years, which has been talked about a lot, but no one's ever gone for it in that way. Do you think that this will have a major impact on reforming the way that degrees are studied? Possibly. I think this has shown the absolute limits of online teaching for primary and secondary schools. We now know beyond measure, there's no substitute for face-to-face teaching in primary schools and secondary schools. And it also shown up the limits of many parents who may have thought they were a dab hand at teaching. With universities, really difficult to project ahead on that one. A lot of the survey data has shown students really want the experience of going to university. It is just not the same. And the, and the survey data shows many are thinking of deferring for a year because they want the full experience. And interestingly, when two-year degrees came on stream, they were ignored. Students want to be at university for three years for all the add-on benefits. Now, where it might change is with overseas students. A lot of universities are now saying, okay, since we're moving online anyway for next term, should we package up some of this stuff? and see if we can market it overseas. We love having overseas students to come to our campuses because they pay very, very high fees. But there's a huge cohort that just can't afford that. And that is potentially a new market for universities to get into the aspirational Chinese, Indian, other Asian kids who can't afford the full experience of coming to Bristol or Exeter, but want a UK university degree. So that might change. Rosemary Bennett there. Now, of course, some students would think about taking a year out to go travelling. Except we can't travel anywhere. One of the biggest things that's changed so dramatically during the lockdown is transport and the way we get around or don't. I'm joined now by Graham Payton, transport correspondent for The Times. Uh, We've got so much to talk about, Graham. Let's start on the roads, as so many people drive normally, but the roads are pretty empty right now. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think... The AA's done some polling and shown some like 16% of drivers haven't driven at all since the lockdown was imposed, and about 44% have only driven once a week. So, you know, it's going to be a major issue when, if, when the lockdown is lifted, you know, there is going to be a, a real problem with um, people simply um, perhaps even perhaps you know, losing the craft of driving or perhaps more fundamentally. Uh, not checking their car over before the drive. So actually the highways agency and, and the police are actually coming together to create a uh, recovery plan. So they're going to be putting out some information to to motorists, telling, urging them to do things like um, check fluid in their cars, tyre pressure, brakes, etc. We could also see quite a few more police on the roads initially because there has been reports of um, 
quite a lot of speeding on really empty roads. So I think um, as and when recovery is lifted, I don't think don't be surprised to see boys in blue bikes out the road. And while we're all off the roads at the moment, there's talk that, that maybe councils might take this opportunity to maybe fill some potholes, carry out some work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the, the Department for Transport has actually said, as long as it can be done within social distancing guidelines, that um, councils should actually be getting on with this. I mean, there's something like an 11 billion pound backlog of, uh, of potholes to be filled so there's no shortage of work out there so um but they have been urged to get on and do that so and at the same time councils are also using the opportunity to um to enhance sort of cycling provision and things we've had a few councils in london the likes of lambeth hackney islington that have um started to do things like put um pop-up bike lanes in place at the side of roads or, or extend or widen pavements and Brighton and Manchester have also done similar. So, you know, maybe when all this is done, the uh, the way that our roads look and the number of people who cycle might look, might look very different. Okay, well, let's talk then about how some of us might try to get to work at some point in the future, the trains. All the talk of social distancing, you know, being able to stand away two centimetres away from somebody on the tube or the trains is hard enough sometimes, never mind two metres. How on earth is the, the commute going to work? Well, uh, I think fundamentally, and from myself speaking to a few train operators, they really do need some leeway with this two-metre rule. I mean, the fact is, if if a two-metre rule is imposed, when whether it's trains or buses, uh, when lockdown is lifted, it's just not going to be it's not going to be um, feasible. I mean, you know, you've, you've got you're going to have something like fifteen percent of train train capacity filled, which is almost nothing when you consider like a rush hour train into central London will be will have something like 150% of capacity. So, you know, 15% is just nothing. So, um, you know, they are going to have to try and relax that two-metre rule. I think probably they will when, um, with the use of face masks being compulsory and things like this, Boris Johnson indicated last week that he thought face masks were probably a good idea on public transport, despite some, some debate over the issue, and that's certainly what we've seen in other countries. Um, I think aside from that, I think there will be quite a continuing big public information campaign to try and urge people to stay away from uh, trains and buses as much as they can and only use them in extreme circumstances and perhaps we will see some more cycling and walking like I indicated earlier. But there's no doubt that the remaining services that we do have will be significantly reduced. I've spoken to some train operators and they've started to look at things like having a, a booking system whereby not everyone turns up at the train station at the same time but you book a sort of 15 minute window in the day and you turn up for example between 8 and 8 50 and then you can get your train then so that there isn't a massive queue of people outside the station uh, and on platforms and i think um, as well uh, you will see more staff actually on the platforms themselves regulating who gets on the trains and i think that also we could have some sort of system in place whereby there's no interchanges at stations. So a lot of stations, for example, in London, you will get off the train at somewhere like Finsbury Park and get onto a an underground. I think they'll stop doing that just to sort of regulate the flow of people through stations as well. So it could be a very, very different uh, experience altogether. And if it's hard to do social distancing on a train, even more so on a plane, and obviously you're potentially cooped up for even longer... I mean, obviously at the moment it's quite difficult because you can't fly anywhere, but were flights to start resuming, I mean, it, it basically it's it's terrible, isn't it? Particularly for budget airlines where, you know, you keep costs down by packing as many people in as possible. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, budget airlines need to fill something like 80% of seats 
just to try and make it cost effective. So, you know, the fact is that their, their whole business model is, um, is blown away by this. I mean, you know, the fact is that even now, even though we don't have many flights, there are still some big concerns. Uh, I mean, this week, for example, we saw uh, an Aer Lingus flight from Belfast to Heathrow that was pretty packed, and Aer Lingus have now agreed to sort of review that particular flight um, in case to, to try and um, to try and maintain social distancing as much as possible. You know, if that's what happens now, imagine when the floodgates start to be reopened and more people start to fly. I think, you know, you will see more social distancing on planes, so, you know, you will see lots of more spare seats. A lot of the operators like EasyJet have talked about keeping the middle seat in a row of three free, I think actually you probably have to leave more than that free. You'd have to, you know, one person I spoke to said that planes would only be at something like twenty percent capacity. If that is the case, then undoubtedly you will see you'll see prices rise very significantly. I think also face masks will be essential. You'll have, you know, a lot of airlines like Wizz Air, Lufthansa, KLM. They've all already said that face masks will have to be. Uh, have to be in use also you know the government's talked about things like quarantine when you arrive um, it was interesting this week uh, austria for example has already made two weeks quarantine uh, essential but vienna airport has started charging passengers 190 euros each to be tested for coronavirus when they land and if they're free they can go about their business in central vienna if they're not they have to go into quarantine for two weeks maybe we'll see something similar here and if someone has got a holiday booked and they thought they're going to be jetting off this summer, what, what what's the chances? When do we next get to go on holiday? It's an interesting one, uh, open to a lot of debate, depends who you talk to. But the fact is that the biggest airline in Europe, which is Ryanair, has said that it won't actually have any flight, well, not any flights in large scale until at least July. So it's more likely probably to be into August and September. So I think, you know, Grant Shapps has already said that he won't be booking a holiday this September if he's a barometer for these sorts of things. Then maybe we should all be writing off the summer break. You know, it's interesting that um, the Travel Supermarket, one of the price comparison websites, said to us this uh, last week that actually the big surge in bookings was for October and November and outside Europe, where perhaps you can uh, get a bit more sun at that time of year. So I, I think there'll be very little of holiday market left, particularly overseas holiday market for this summer. And I think a lot of people will be looking to book for the autumn and perhaps even into early next year. Another cheery note to end on there, Graham Payton. Thanks very much. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Of course, all of this is having a massive impact on all types of business and the economy. I'm joined now by Richard Fletcher, business editor of The Times. Richard, this goes for everyone reporting on this story, to be honest, everyone reading it as well. But as a business and economic story, have we ever seen anything like this? No, it's it's extraordinary, really. I I suppose some people have compared it to covering the financial crisis, but there is one big difference, and and that is that you know we've caused this downturn by turning off the taps. So we, you know, this isn't this isn't a financial crisis in that you know something's happened and that has hit demand. Governments around the world have literally switched off demand. That is the aim of, of the lockdown in, in the UK and, and elsewhere in the world. You know, it off economic activity. And we and I don't think anyone's really experienced that before, witnessed that before. And you therefore see these extraordinary numbers. Uh, this week, we've obviously seen uh, the motor manufacturers talk about a 97% fall in, uh, in car registrations. We've seen similar numbers from airlines in terms of traffic numbers in April. So these are sort of numbers you can't really even get your head around to understand. So it is a very different story uh, to cover. And actually, at the start, lots of people were talking about this would be a V-shaped uh, recession, that we'd go very quickly into it, but we would bounce very quickly out of it. And, and that was the sort of confident talk uh, at the at the beginning, but actually, I think that's that people are talking less about a V-shaped recovery, and it's more people now talking about a W-shaped recovery. I will bounce a little bit up, and then there, maybe there'll be another lockdown, and we'll bounce down again, or even an L-shape. So I just it, the story has changed, obviously, over the weeks. But as you say, it is it's, it's extraordinary, and we, none of us have really had any experience of of this or, or or where it goes. I mean, it's amazing when you when you see that the the government is now paying the wages of 6.3 million workers, although obviously the people who aren't workers, so it's distinct from obviously the government pays the wages of doctors and nurses and teachers and policemen all the time. But you know, 6.3 million people not working uh, but having their wages paid, another 1.8 million people claiming universal credit. So it, it, there's a huge draw on the government finances which is obviously adding to the fact that you know they're not having any tax take either because nobody's spending any money yeah absolutely i, I was talking to uh, phil aldrick our economics editor last week there was a, a measure that was going to cost the treasury five billion and i remember him being very dismissive dismissive of this sum and i and and uh, you know we were joking that you know when we covered budgets together which we have for uh, uh, over a decade when we covered budgets together we both look in the red book at that the costings page, any measure that had a cost of more than a billion, you know, we'd consider it a story, you know, a big story on budget day. And now you talk about some of the billions that are being spent on schemes and you just don't, you don't even think about it. So you're right, the, the, the sums are now so extraordinary that it's not become a story. And, and also that's a bit like, as I was saying about some of the falls you're seeing in measures like car sales or passenger numbers, and they're so big, 
half of you thinks, well, that's not a story because of course they're down 90%. And then the other half of you think, well, actually, that's the most amazing story. So it is, it's really quite hard to cover in a way because you, you don't have any sort of data points to lean back on because we've not been here before. Let's talk then about what's happening in the short term. Obviously, the Department for Business has, has been sort of liaising with business groups and unions about what life returning to some form of work might look like. How different do you think people will find it if in the next few weeks uh, the government does say people can start going back to work? I think for those of us who work in the office, it will be incredibly different. I just think there'll be fewer of us in the office by the very nature of if the recommendation is that workers should be two metres apart where possible. You know, you look at how much space most people have in offices, you know, and offices are very expensive. So, you know, companies are quite focused on making them as efficient as possible and and getting in as many people as possible. So I think for those people in offices, it will change completely. I mean, how do you manage a lift, for example? You know, you're going to have to stagger times people come in. You're going to have to, people are going to have to get more used to walking up the stairs. You know, so I do think there'll be, I think for those people in offices, it'll be it'll be just, a, a, there'll be less people. You'll be sitting further apart. And then there are obviously, you know, factories, which actually some of them, are, are, it's quite easy to do social distancing. So, uh, you know, some of the some of the car lines and car manufacturers actually it's not it's not that difficult to keep people a couple of meters apart but then how do you feed all those people how do you get them all into the factory at the same time so there it's it there's there is lots and lots of short-term issues which i'm sure people will find ways around and people will you know as ever will be very adaptive but then i think you know there are some medium and longer term issues as well and i suppose everyone's probably willing to put up with a bit of awkwardness for a little bit you know if it was for a couple of weeks well it's okay we can stagger times and uh, start times and walk up the stairs although anyone who's ever been dragged up the stairs um, in the news building 11 floors while trying to hold a conversation with the editor will know that actually getting in the lift makes more sense but um you know if this ends up being not a question of weeks but months and months and months that becomes much more difficult to sustain doesn't it it does and, and it also has an effect on 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 business models, you know, if you look at, say, restaurants, for example, if you decide that you're going to have to have fewer tables in a restaurant, that means that there are fewer covers. Restaurants talk about covers during a session. Well, if you're doing fewer covers, that means either you have to pay less rent on the building because you're making less money or customers have to pay more for their meal out. And I suspect it ends up being a combination of the two. So, you know, for some businesses, this is a this isn't just a change to a short term change to how you work. It's also a massive change to your business model. If you look at some of the, you know, if you look at people queuing at the moment to get into supermarkets, you know, can you imagine shoppers queuing to get into Primark? Well, there's a business that's built on, you know, selling huge volumes of T-shirts or, you know, whatever this, the, the, the latest fashion item my daughter is buying at the moment. You know, <laughs> but that, that is reliant on having lots of teenage, uh, uh, mainly girls, in, in the shop at the same time. Well, that that's not going to be able to happen. So, you know, and there's a business that doesn't have an online operation is 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 very reliant on its stores and a huge turnover of customers. Well, you can't you you it's difficult to see a scenario where you're going to see that in the next six months, 12 months, even 18 months. So there are some businesses which are really affected and you have to sort of question their whole business model is about to be turned on its head. And is that how long you think this is going to last for in terms of the, the sort of long-term impact on business? I think the long-term impact on the economy is, is I think most people agree, 
it'll take us uh, at least two or three years to get back to the sort of levels of, of, of GDP that we were at uh, before this crisis. I mean, personally, I find it difficult to see before you have a vaccine that we, we don't have some form of social distancing, even if that's not imposed uh, by the government. I think people's fear, and and obviously, you, you know, you've seen this in the polling of, of, of actually people quite welcome uh, the lockdown and the so you know as much as the sort of libertarian in me w- 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 might find that hard to understand you know I think actually people quite like the the lockdown as the polling suggests and actually the difficulty may be persuading people to go back to work to go back to shops and to go back to restaurants rather than the difficulty being that they're not opening you know so uh, I, I personally I, I think until we have a vaccine you're going to see social distancing in some form and that obviously has an effect on on business, particularly sort of consumer-facing businesses. And just finally, the million-dollar question, when do you think we'll be able to go to the pub again? Well, the most gloomy suggestion will be towards the end of the year. I mean, I have you have seen those sort of in um, in parts of Europe, bars with taped out, you know, a, a metre of space or, you know, a square metre of space per customer. So maybe bars will just become very exclusive or we'll all have to find those, you know, those those sort of locals that never had anyone in them. I, I think it will be some time, uh, I suspect, but, you know, by its very nature, it's quite difficult to to control where people stand in a bar and, and how far apart they keep from people. Oh, Richard, meeting in a pub one day, we can but dream. Uh, we expect the government to announce uh, whatever it's going to do this Sunday, so we'll reflect on that in next week's episodes of the podcast. But subscribe to the Red Box podcast on ACAST, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen so you don't miss this week's extra episode. When all being well, Esther Webb and I will be tuning in to see how Boris Johnson gets on at his first PMQs against Keir Starmer. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.